The church on earth is called the church militant. Did you know that? The church militant. And the church in heaven is called the church triumphant. So when I say that we must become a militant church, I'm using hundreds of years of theological language, and I'm not talking about going and taking up arms. I'm talking about taking the Word of God out into the world and being militant and presenting it to the world wherever evil live, lifts its ugly head. Here in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we get seven letters to the seven churches, and Jesus speaks to each of them differently. To one, he says, you think you're alive, really, you're dead. To another, he says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. Another one, well, you've lost your first love. How would you like to be called faithful? Yeah, faithful. That is the church at Philadelphia, and that's the church we're looking at today here in Revelation chapter 3. Welcome to the program. We invite you to join us today as we continue our series, The Seven Letters to the Seven Churches. Philadelphia, a faithful church. Here's Pastor Gary with more. 2 Timothy 3, 5. It says this concerning some church members, holding to a form of godliness, although they deny its power, and then avoid such men as these. From the outside, boy, they look like top-notch Christians. They're doing everything a Christian should do. They're active in all the programs of the church. They have the form of godliness, but no real life. They deny the power of godliness. It is all simply an empty shell. And it is all external. No real fire for Christ in their innermost being. These are the churches that teach easy believism. What is easy believism? They teach in one way or another that it is the easiest thing in the world to become a Christian. There's no real pain in it. There's no real anguish. There's no real conviction. There's no real burden or grief. There's no self-hatred. You believe these four principles and make a decision for Jesus and you're in. It's an easy kind of believism that does not include conviction of sin and struggling with self. And many of the churches in Silicon Valley have preachers who teach this easy believism. Sorry, Silicon Valley. And these dead churches are basically passive antinomians. There's a whole lot of, uh, a whole movement today called sonship. Sure, some of you have heard of it. And it's pretty much eating up many Presbyterian churches in America. And it is spilled out into other churches that says, in essence, the Christian life is simply doing what you did when you became a Christian every morning. And that is just receive Jesus as your Savior every morning. Now, that is an oversimplification again, but I want you to get the point here. There is nothing in it about obeying God's law 
There is nothing in it about avoiding sin. There is nothing in it about repentance. All of these things are said to be legalistic by them and harsh and unloving. And that is what a dead church looks like, my friends. It preaches easy believism. It makes absolutely no demands upon the lives of the congregation. Notice what else he says. He says, I see your deeds. I know that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Then in verse 3 it says, So remember what you have received and heard and repent. And in verse 2 he says, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of God. So his complaints are number one. They are spiritually dead, though they look alive, and everyone else thinks they're alive, except Jesus. And secondly, their deeds are incomplete. You see, they did just enough of the right things to look like they were doing right. And they were, what they were doing looked good to man, and their church was looked upon as vibrant and successful. But the works they did did not have any real substance. And they didn't confirm their confession of faith. In fact, their works eventually became pharisaical. That is, they would condemn other people, but they would never look inside and criticize themselves. So those are the complaints that Jesus had with his church. Serious complaints. Pray that he will not make those complaints against us, my friends. Ask yourself the question, are you spiritually dead? Oh, you all look pretty vibrant, most of you. You look all alive to me, but I'm not the one that really knows. How does Jesus look at you? That's the question. Second, are your deeds complete? Or do you do just enough things to get by, but there's no real depth, no real substance? So now he gives them a five-fold exhortation. Verse 2, Wake up, strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. Verse 3, Remember what you have received and heard and keep and repent. Keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know the hour I will come to you. So now, what is the exhortation? First of all, wake up. Be watchful. Be alert. Be on guard. Remember Sardis? They thought the city was impregnable. They stopped being vigilant. They were no longer careful to guard their boundaries. So the enemies crept in and destroyed them. In spite of the fact that the city seemed impregnable, it fell to the enemy when the enemy found one little crack. People asleep. We must not only have the appearance of impregnability, we must show ourselves to be so, beloved. We must be on guard. We must be watchful. Never let your guard down the rest of your life. That's why Paul said, don't grow weary in well-doing. 
Not this month, next month, next year, the year after that. The rest of your life. And I know it is wearying keeping your guard up. But you signed on to the battlefield until the day you die. Once you put your guard down, that's when your enemy will come in with a punch and he will bring you down. As long as this life lasts, don't let your guard down. Don't let this world in, which we don't, do not trust this world in which we live. Wake up, be watchful, be alert. After all, the Bible says, he who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. Then after telling them to wake up, he tells them to establish themselves. That is, strengthen the things that remain. Rebuild, reconstruct, take the strength that you have as small as it is. Take the little faith that you have left. Don't discount it. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. The majority is against you. But take what life and what strength you have and rework it and rebuild the church. It doesn't have to remain in this condition even though the majority is against you. Work with what you have or you will die in your sleep. Galatians 6. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due time we will reap if we do not faint. Hebrews 12. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Sardis. You don't have much life, it is feeble, but it is enough to go on and rebuild and to rework it. Again, don't despise the day of small beginnings. And then remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Lay it to heart. Seriously consider the deadness of your situation The opposition that you have stood for for so long to the word of God. And now allow it to convict you and break you and to awaken you. Remember what you were. Look at what you are now. And remember what you are supposed to be and hold fast to what you do have from me. Flickering though it may be. Hold fast to that spiritual strength and that spiritual life and repent. Repent of apathetic, non-aggressive types of Christianity. Repent of synthesis with your culture, of incomplete works, of hypocrisy, externalism, easy-going religion, and become a militant church that the world will have to oppose or yield to. I pray that we will be the kind of that that kind of church you know if you study theology for long on the church there's a name for the church on earth and a name for the church in heaven that is those who have died and have gone to heaven the church on earth is called the church militant did you know that the church militant And the church in heaven is called the church triumphant. 
So when I say that we must become a militant church, I'm using hundreds of years of theological language, and I'm not talking about going and taking up arms. I'm talking about taking the word of God out into the world and being militant and presenting it to the world wherever evil live, lifts its ugly head. One that is vigorous and unceasing, diligent in pressing the claims of Christ upon our culture so that the culture we live in, they will have to oppose us or yield to us and not just take us for granted or simply yawn whenever we open our mouths. Is that the kind of church we are? That we live in this country in such a way that this country is going to have to oppose us or it is going to have to yield to us? Then Christ makes a threat to them. If they don't do these things, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. Again, this is not talking about the second coming. It says that he will come as a thief in the night. No, it's not talking about the second coming because he's going to come at the end of time, whether or not Sardis repented. His second coming is not conditional. He's not talking about his second coming. In fact, Throughout these chapters, as we've already said, when he talks about his coming, like in verse 16 of chapter 2, or else I come to you quickly, this is not talking about his second coming. He is talking about intervening in the life of these churches in history by his providence and by the power of the Holy Spirit to defend them, to destroy them, and to judge them. And that's what he's saying here. If you don't do these things, if you don't wake up and strengthen what remains and remember what you have received and repent, I will come like a thief in the night and you will not know at what hour I will come and I will come with judgment. Now, what is the phrase, come as a thief in the night? I have a couple of books in my library on the rapture that talk about the second coming of Christ and the rapture being some secret thing that at any moment Christians will be snatched out of this world secretly and quietly and no one left will really know what happened. Their proof text is that Jesus will come as a thief in the night. Well, the point of Jesus coming as a thief in the night is not that he is coming secretly, but he is coming unexpectedly. Look at the text. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief secretly and quietly and no one will know it. Is that what it says? No. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come. So the point is, he's coming like a thief comes unexpectedly, suddenly. When you think you're the most secure, you got ADT, you've got ring, everything to protect your home. You've got a gun. Your buildings look solid 
and everything else you have, and you say, we are a secure church, then Jesus says, I'm going to come as a thief in the night, and I'm going to bring judgment upon you. Refusal to repent means Christ will come in judgment upon that people. And notice his promise. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments by either false doctrine or compromise with the culture or by perversion or spiritual deadness or some kind of easy type of Christianity. I have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now, what is Jesus promising these faithful people who did not soil their garments like the rest of the church members did? He is promising them that they will walk with him in white clothes. Now, white clothes have a threefold significance in the book of Revelation, and I believe all three of them fit here. White clothes obviously symbolize, in some places, purity. A white robe as a robe that has been washed in the blood of Christ, like in Revelation 7, verses 13 through 15. In some places, a white robe or clothing has reference to festivity, to rejoicing, like in chapter 19, verse 7 and 8. And then there are other places where white clothing is a figure of victory. People who have conquered, like in Revelation 19, 14. So you have a great promise that Jesus is presenting to these people here. Even though they are a minority, they are a powerful minority. He says, if you hold out and you stay faithful to me, then you will walk with me. We will have fellowship and sweet communion in white with me. You'll be pure. There will be rejoicing. And you will conquer your enemies. Second promise, verse 5. He overcomes will those, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. If you overcome, that is, if you deal with the situation. And you don't allow yourself to be swept off your feet by the majority of people in the church. And you still hold to my headship. You will not only be clothed in white garments. But I will not erase your name from the book of life. Now what does that figure symbolize? Do you think God has a literal book up in heaven with a pen? And he writes people's names in that book? No, it is a figure of speech that John got out of the Old Testament. (coughs) Because membership in the covenant is pictured in the Old Testament in many places as having your name written in the book. And he's saying here is that role, R-O-L-L, of the church, that role of covenant community, you who are faithful in the white, your names have been written in it. And your name shall not ever be erased. But there are some in the church, in fact, a majority, who don't have their name written in it at all because of their spiritual deadness. That is the point.
than the last promise. He who overcomes will be thus will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? And I want you to realize that all of these promises are benefits of Christ's atoning death on the cross to you and I. You see, the only reason we have white garments is because they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. The only reason our names are written in the book of life is because of what Christ has accomplished to save us from death. And now we are talking here about the intercession of Christ. Christ says, I'm going to mention your name. I'm going to confess your name. I'm going to intercede for you before my Father in heaven. And before the, all the angels in heaven, I, I'm going to tell him your name. And I'm going to talk to him about you. I'm going to pray for you. And once again, the intercession of Christ is based on that atonement. One of the great themes of the book of Hebrews is the intercession of Christ. A subject, really, which not many books have been written about. There are few good ones, but I haven't found many, that Christ right now, at the right hand of God, is praying for you and me. He prayed that you would believe in Him. And that's why you believe in Him. He prays every day that God would keep us from falling. And that is why we will never fall away from His love and His mercy and His grace. That as long as Jesus prays for us, oh, we might have struggles in this world. But we are eternally safe. I ask you to please go home tonight. Read John 17, Jesus' great high prayer. If you want to know what Jesus is saying about you, if you want to know what he is asking God to do for you, go home and read John 17. That's where we have a copy of his intercession prayer for us. There is the prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ prays for you and I every day of our lives. So those are the three blessings that he says he will give to those who remain pure. He will clothe them in white clothes. He won't erase their names from the book of life. And he will confess their names before the Father and before the holy angels. Then, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, everyone in this room can have what this preacher says to the church at Sardis. Every one of you can. My prayer is that every one of you can hear what the Spirit says to this church through the preaching of this preacher. In Sardis and these other churches, not everyone could hear what the Spirit was saying in His Word because they did not have the spiritual capacity. They had ears. And you would think because they had ears, they could understand everything because they, of course, could hear the preacher. But they couldn't hear. 
and they would not hear because they resisted the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. I pray every Sunday you hear the word of God preached to you and read to you. Everyone thought Sardis was a great church. But Christ saw it as full of spiritual zombies. Their appearance of impregnability did not save them. May we never be like the church of Sardis. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. <music>